Let us turn for our scripture reading to Psalm 48, verses 8 through 14, focusing especially on verse 10b. Psalm 48, verses 8 through 14. Beginning to read then with verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever, Selah. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so your praise to the ends of the earth, or so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. Now he will be our guide even to death. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. The title of the message is God's Hand Full of Righteousness. I want you to cultivate that picture in your mind's eye of the Lord holding out his hand to us all, and seeing that that hand is full of righteousness. God has given us this picture in the Old Testament, in Psalm 48, which is a psalm about the praise of God, and um, especially as God would relate to his people, the city of God, Zion. And so Psalm 48 paints the big picture for us, and in the midst of this big picture, it says in verse 10 that the key to it all is the righteousness that is held in the right hand of uh, that one who is the right hand at the right hand of God the Father. And so it's a beautiful picture, and um, God wants us to meditate upon that. And uh, we know that by his inscripturating this and giving it to us in um uh, in this way, because he wants us to see the the the, the largesse, the the riches, the wealth of the the, the blessing that is in uh, his right hand. Um, now, when we think of this, we think of how we we use our hands to give gifts to one another, and is it not exciting for us to have young? children, babies, and uh, the, for their first birthdays to come with uh, our gifts to them in our hands. We all have, to, even to the end of our lives, we have good thoughts about receiving gifts. And uh, no, this, no doubt, in some cases, goes back to these early gifts that we give our people, give our children uh, in their youngest days. And um, we delight as parents in... Um, hoping that the children will be excited by these things. And um, I know the, the last time that I saw this done in this church was with the McMullins and uh, Liza's first birthday uh, last year. And it was wonderful to see um, the, the, more, the, more her, the more her eyes lit up with excitement. Um, 
and that was just the first one. So uh, John and Audrey were trying to teach her how to get excited about her birthday and about receiving gifts. Well, that we our, our lives we build upon that, don't we? We 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 build upon that, and um, we cultivate that sense of wonder, and that's what God is trading on here. Um, is saying that His right hand is full of um, of righteousness, um, and if we ask ourselves what are the best gifts that we could give each other, um, part of that we will we'll deal here with here in the sermon. But you know, we think, well, you know. Could be diamonds, could be baby gifts, could be riches of gold and silver and these kinds of things. Well, God would have us focus here on the fact that that uh, in the right hand of uh, in the in the in His right hand there is this this fullness of what He calls righteousness. So it's not uh, it's theoretically we we should suppose that this is better than anything else that we can imagine, better than gold, better than silver. Um, better than um, electronic games, the, the other kinds of things that we delight in, sports equipment, beauty stuff, whatever. Uh, God points to this as being something really, really special. And so I want you to notice here uh, five things about this. Ask yourself about this. First of all, what it is, what this righteousness is. Secondly, where it is, where it is. Uh, thirdly, to whom it is given. Uh, fourthly, the resultant exaltation upon the earth, and then kind of a postscript, a P.S. of of how this is so wonderful in its association with God. So, first of all, what is it when God says that He um, He He talks about the city of God? He talks about in verse eight. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple, according to your your name, O God. So is your praise to the ends of the earth. So these are all wonderful things, uh, and the people of God are happy with their God. Well, uh, what is it? that makes them so happy with their God. And that's where the answer comes. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Your right hand is, is not just has righteousness in it, but your, your, your right hand is full of righteousness. There is abundant righteousness there in the right hand of God. And so if we ask what it is, when we say this word righteousness, um, uh, we know that on its face, righteousness describes the totality of the good things that can be done, the good things that people can do to be like God. God calls us to be like him. He calls us to mimic him in the things that we do. And so all of the things that we do to mimic the Lord, which are good, uh, we call righteousness. It's as I've said to you many times before. It's an ab- the word is an abstraction of the word right. So if you can think of doing things right, doing things good, doing things in a proper way, 
Well, if you abstract it from that one good thing to the to the uh, abstraction of that goodness or the abstraction of that righteousness, that's what God is talking about here. And um, when we when we ask what it is, we under, we understand on the face. Yes, it has to do with good things and uh, and proper things that sort of thing. But the, the 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 clincher is, or the important thing is that God. Uh, by the very fact that we are created to be like him, God demands of us that we adhere to his commands. There is an obligation on our part to be righteous, to be good through and through. And that's the problem because our race fell in Adam's first sin and ever since Adam's sin, we have not had this original righteousness. We have had, in, in systematic theology, we call it original sin. So instead of having original righteousness, the thing that God demands, we've had original sin, which is the opposite. And the question is, how can we then pass muster with the Lord? How can we possibly spend eternity with him if we cannot obtain this righteousness. And when we look within ourselves, when we look within our own bones and are the strength of our lives, the strength of our mind, the strength of our emotions, the strength of our willpower, when we look at the resources that we have, the problem is that every part of us, in terms of these resources, is tainted by sin. That's what we call total depravity. Every dimension of our being is uh, is depraved to one degree or another. It's all skewed. And the problem is God expects every one of these parts of us to be totally perfect, to be totally good, to be totally righteous. And so the question is, how can we possibly obtain what we need when we come before God's fearsome face and we know what he expects of us, that God will not excuse us just because he, quote, loves us, because God is also righteous and God cannot, God would not be a righteous God. He would not be good himself if he just excused our sins or said that they don't really matter. Well, if they didn't really matter, then why did he command us to do that in the, in the first place? And if he didn't command us to do that in the first place, is God simply being arbitrary? Is he simply operating on the basis of might makes right because he's big and strong? He can just do whatever he wants. No, you see, God is bound by his own goodness to only promote, to only accept, to only glorify and enjoy that which is truly good. And so the greatest need that we have as human beings is the abundant righteousness that we need. And, um, you know, how can we obtain that other than by receiving it? as a gift from God, where God has really, according to the parameters of the creation, where God has really worked it out so that the righteousness is a real righteousness by a human being that then can be obtained by us, and as it works out by faith, as we see it offered to us. Now, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, if we ask ourselves, what is the greatest dimension of righteousness? This which is 
is fulsome within the hand of God. What what is the greatest dimension of that righteousness? I don't know whether you've ever thought about it, but the the essence of it, or the highest dimension of righteousness, is the love of God. We're, we're and again to take the love of God back to an ethical thing that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love God, and and the in the Bible gives us the great command that we should love the Lord with all of our hearts and soul and strength, both Old Testament and New Testament. That is the basic command of God. So it is the love of God, even though it doesn't sound like something that we should do in an ethical sense, it is part of that ethical process. And so for us to, for God's right hand to be full of righteousness, it has to be full of this the, the full love of God. Now, we know <clears throat> that we ought to love God. Why? Because he's very good. He's the best thing. We're never satisfied in this world to show our affections for those things which are lesser. No, we're supposed to show our affections or our love for those things which are better, which are more superior. If we, if we love the baser things of this world in the place of those things that are higher, it just shows our wickedness, doesn't it? And so the greatest need that we have in terms of righteousness is the, the full love of God, loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. So when we think of the right hand of God being full of righteousness, it is full of this uh, uh, superior love which we're supposed to have of the Godhead. So that God will supply that which we don't have. We don't love God like we should, but there is a love like that available, and it's in part of this package of righteousness that God has in his hand. Your right hand is full of righteousness. That means your, your right hand is full of the kind of love that, is absolutely necessary to pass through the judgment of God. When we come before the Lord, despite the fact that in the flesh, we still don't love him as we ought, because we have Christ, we will pass the strictest test imaginable. I don't think any of us really like tests where we can really fail. We're really failing is, the, is a, a very possible result. None of us like that. Uh, <clears throat> I know in the in the counseling, since he's not here, I can talk about it a little, little bit more. But in the in the in the going up to this uh, this Ohio uh, regional uh, for racing, uh, when Caden feels when Caden thinks about the fact that he can fail and uh, get beat and and lose, he's not very excited about <laughs> about running. And you know you can't you can't promise a kid that he's going to going to win. Well, we we feel the same way about this in our great judgments. Any of us, if we go to a world work where we have to pass some sort of entry exam, or go to school where we pass some entry exam, it tends to terrify us because we're afraid of failing and getting rejected. But in this case, you see, because. God's right hand is full of righteousness. There's a sense there where there's no righteousness that, we, that will be expected of us that will not be supplied by God's own hand. 
that God will give us exactly what we need and that will satisfy divine justice and divine goodness so that if we simply partake of that which he has in his hand, we can be eternally happy and thrilled and, uh, and uh, filled with transcendence when we go to be before him. So the, the what it is is very, very important. What is in the hand? It's the hand of righteousness. Now, we ask, where is it? Or where it is? And we notice that it's in the right hand here. It says, your right hand is full of righteousness. Now, this is an Old Testament code for the Messiah. Because the Son of God, the Son of the King, the, the, the Son of the King that was supposed to inherit the kingdom would always sit at the King's right hand. That was the favorite side. So if you were the, the son that was going to inherit the kingdom, you would be at the right hand side of God. Now the God's only begotten son, the special messianic son that the Old Testament spoke of from beginning to end, that son is portrayed as being at the right hand of God. When Jesus ascends on high, where does he ascend in the New Testament? Where does he ascend? The Bible says he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. So here in the Old Testament in the Psalms, when it says your right hand is full of righteousness, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in Old Testament language, even though he was not fully understood yet. So we see when we ask the question, where is it or where it is? We see that it is bound up in this one who ascended on high and sits at the right hand of God. He is the right hand of the Father. The Son through whom God will completely um, win over the world. And it will be a, a token then of his reign and his wonder. The right hand of the living God. Um, there is only one <clears throat> uh, legitimate uh, son. There is only one legitimate place for this righteous to be. And uh, it is with uh, the living God. And what we see, and we just finished preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And you saw through the Gospel of Mark, all the way through, you saw this determination on the part of Jesus, to start the course and to finish the course. There was a concentration there. And even at the end, when he's being tried in the court of, of Herod, um, he's, being, he's asked questions and he's not answering them. Because he realizes that these questions are just, are they're just, in a sense, foolish questions. They're trivial questions. They're questions that do not understand the whole of the matter. And so most often Jesus didn't even answer. He didn't even, because his concentration was on finishing, finishing the race that had been set before him, the race of the Son of God, to obtain this righteousness by working it up in his own life. And we must remember that, that this righteousness is not just a figment of our imagination. It's just, it's not a magic conjuring up where God just says, that it's there. No, it is obtained by our Lord Jesus Christ. Tediously being born as a child, as a baby, and then tediously growing up and living. If you think that 
the teenage years or grow the, the early youthful years and the teenage years, if you think that they're tedious to you as an adult, think of them in terms of the Lord of glory, the Son of God. Jesus Christ humiliated himself to go through these humble paces day by day, waking up crying as a baby because he was hungry and then getting fed uh, on his mother's breast and then learning how to be uh, a young man and uh, hearing his parents tell him what to do. And then he always did things properly, but still there was a tedium there. There was a meticulous development there. And each day, each thing, each moment of his life, he did it right. And in the end, the millions of things that he did right add up to this glorious word righteousness. Our righteousness is bound up in Jesus Christ in his active life, in his act of what we call in systematic theology, his act of obedience. And that righteousness could not be more rich. It could not be more valuable. You know, we can show up at heaven's gate with all the gold in this world, and it will not be enough to get us through the gate and into heaven. We can have silver, we can have diamonds, we can have accomplishments of our lives, works that were done according to the flesh. They would not be enough. They would not avail us. They would not get us past that gate. But the riches of Christ, the fulsome riches of Christ, they will be more than enough to get us past that gate, to get us through the judgment. Because it adds up to the totality of a real man, the second Adam, a real man who then, in terms of eternal covenant theology, it was worked out that this would could be done, that, 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 that the God-man could give us his righteousness and be a substitute for us. Take our sin, give us his righteousness. This double swap, this double condition, this double change. And it will be successful if we obtain it. But where is it? It's at the right hand of God. And who is at the right hand of God? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we see that Christ is the key, and we see how rich he is, I don't think most of us meditate on how rich Jesus is in terms of the necessary um, stuff that we need to please our Heavenly Father. That's why I've explained it a little bit more fully in terms of love and these kinds of things. Uh, Jesus, there wasn't one day of his life where our Lord Jesus Christ woke up and uh, was confused about who God was, about whether Jehovah was God or some other God. There wasn't a day of his life where he woke up in a sort of a confused state of where his loyalty lies. Every tick of the clock of the life of Jesus Christ was filled with a, uh, an ascendant love of God the Father. So that when we appear before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, I have no other reason, O Lord, but that I have the riches of your son who offered them to me and I have taken them and, uh, and I, I know that I'm full because of Christ. And God will look upon us and he will say, well, good, well done, well done. Thy good, my, my good and faithful servant, enter into thy paradise. That's the essence of the gospel. Praise the Lord. 
for the riches of Jesus Christ that can be ours. Now, if we ask the third question, to whom is this given? We see that it's given to Zion and the elect. That's here in this passage. It's given to Zion. The reason that this is a song of praise and glory, the reason that it's about the city of our God, is because it is given to those people whom God has uh, selected out of his own love, out of his own free choice, to receive it. <clears throat> and all of those people are made, are made up. They, they are called, in the Old Testament, they're called Zion, which was the city of God. And... Um, in verse eight, it says, "In the in the uh, in, in the city of the Lord, or uh, in, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever." Well, that's a metaphor for the for the people that are in the city. God's not God was not concerned about the masonry of Zion or the masonry of Jerusalem that gets knocked down and that sort of thing. But it's the people of Zion that He calls Zion that He metaphorically calls Zion, and. Uh, he says, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. Well, what was in the midst of the temple? It was the Holy of Holies. What was in the midst of the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant, where uh, the law of God was uh, positioned underneath the mercy seat. Uh, because we needed, we, we needed somehow to have that law of God taken care of for us by the mercy of God. And, um, and so... Uh, that's given to the people of God, and um, and so this psalm rejoices um, at the people of God because they are in this position to obtain this inheritance that is worked out by God Himself, because His right hand is full of righteousness, and they partake of it. They take of the right; they put their faith in this righteousness. Then they. Receive, they receive the right to be the people of God. They, they receive the right to be called Zion, the city of God. And, and as such, they rejoice. And that's the fourth point. Uh, what it is, where it is, to whom it is given. The resultant exaltation is fourth. The resultant exaltation, we can see that in verses 11 through 13. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Now God is not, God is using Mount Zion as a metaphor or a picture for his people. He, he wasn't he wasn't interested in the in the mountain that the mountain would jump for joy before his face. No, it's the people who who live there. So let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughter the daughter of Judah be glad. The daughters of Judah be glad. So here there he makes a metaphor for all the people of God using the daughters of Judah. Women of the church, be glad. God has used you as a metaphor for the whole church, a picture for the whole church. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about, walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide uh, even unto death. And so... The, the resultant exaltation is because of the victory that is obtained by, the, by obtaining the righteousness of the right hand of God. This is why when people talk about the Old Testament as if it's only law, or that, that, that they, think that they, they, they think that Moses agreed with the Pharisees that work salvation was how you got to heaven, 
Psalms like this and verses like this just cast that into rubble. The Old Testament believed in the gospel too. And they, they held that all of those people that have enjoyed the gospel, they were the ones who really made up the Old Testament people of God. All, Paul says in Romans 9, now Romans 10, not all Israel is of Israel. In other words, not all physical Israel is spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel was the real Zion. The outward Zion was the towers and that sort of thing, but the real Zion was the people of faith. And so, and the people of faith exalted. Uh, let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad. Walk about her. See, look at look at the city that God has created. Look at this people that God has saved. Look at the elect, brothers and sisters. What a magnificent memorial that is to the kindness and the mercy of God. Consider her palaces. Consider these bulwarks, the towers. The most glorious dimensions of Zion had to do with the work of God and the salvation of his people. So let us stand back and be glad. And then the very last point here is that this is part of the essence of God as we know him. This is part of the essence of the covenant of grace. Verse 14, for this is God. In other words, you look at, you look at what he's done. You look at the, the righteousness that he's supplied. You look at the righteousness in his right hand, which is able to establish us even unto the uttermost. You look at that. And, and as far as we know, that is God. Uh, when we think of God, when we when we notice God, we see him as the co- God of the covenant of grace, God. We see him as this fulsome right hand of righteousness unto us. And he is our God forever and ever, it says in verse 14. He will be our guide even to death. So the Old Testament people had an understanding of how faith worked to get us through death, that faith was a way of overcoming death, that faith had to do with eternal heaven and eternal fellowship with God the Father. So this is a glorious thing. And as we look at the Lord's table, can we not see here that this is a wonderful memorial to the right hand of righteousness that God holds out for us? Can we not see the fullness of God's hand portrayed here? The riches of his righteousness. The fact that these celebrate the fact that he's able to save us to the uttermost. That there's nothing that can be demanded of us which will flunk us. That is not found in the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and his accomplishments. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us eat and enjoy his good hand. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst be with us as we go forward now. We thank thee for this uh, this bread and this wine that thou hast placed before us, all tokens of your largesse, of your broken body, and then the, the wine of the, of the righteousness of your blood. But this was blood that was spilt, but it was not blood that was guilty. It was innocent blood. It was blood from the lamb without blemish. And so it is able to cleanse us, even unto the uttermost. In this blood, we have the fruit of your right hand of righteousness. Let us, O Lord, rejoice and be glad in the supper you have put before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let me give the words of institution here, first of all. Reading from 1 Corinthians 11, um, verse 23 and following, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, implying that all who eat and drink in a faithful way obtain the riches associated with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Holy Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he comes again, as it has just been read to you. Uh, this is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but a remembrance of the once-for-all sacrifice of himself in his death for our sins. Nor is it a mere memorial to Christ's sacrifice. It is a literal means of grace, by which God feeds us with the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit and through faith. Thus, he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and in our endeavors to serve him in holiness. The sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sin and our nourishment and growth in Christ. The bread and wine represent the crucified body and shed blood of the Savior, which he gave to his people. In this sacrament, God confirms that he is faithful and true to fulfill the promises of his covenant, and he calls us to deeper gratitude for our salvation, to renewed consecration, and to more faithful obedience. The supper is also a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other as members of his body. As we come to the Lord's table, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, to crucify the sin that is within us, to resist the devil, and to follow Christ as becomes those who bear his name. Now, we're not only supposed to explain the table, but we're supposed to fence the table since there is uh, the possible negative coming from the table. If, if we approach a holy thing of the Lord in a profane or unholy manner, what can we expect other than to get uh, his curse and his wrath upon us? Supposing something is, is just common when it is indeed so special. So we must come to the table in faith. We must come as sincere believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, our faith must be our own. It can't be our mother's or our father's or our friends or some supposed saint or the mother of Jesus or anything else. It must be ours. 
And uh, then we realize that the warning that God gives us here is not for the humble and contrite um, who see their weaknesses and see their frailties and see their uh, hypocrisy and see their, their lax, lax dedication to the Lord uh, as if the table were only for those who were free from sin. No, the table is for those who come as sinners, who understand their, that they are sinful and who need the grace of God. So let us then examine our, our minds and hearts in prayer uh, that we might come to the table. Our Father and our God, we pray as we analyze our lives, we pray that we might not analyze them based on some subjective dimension of our expectation, but that we would examine them based upon that holy law which you gave us for just such an exercise. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would meditate on the Ten Commandments, on the, the fact that we must love thee above all other gods, that thou must be our supreme love, that all other loves must come after that. And when we think of these loves, O oh Lord, we think of that love which specifies all of the rights and the wrongs of our lives. For if there's anything other, if there's anything higher than thy law, then there's some other God who has give, dig, given dignity to that law. But thou art the only God, O Lord. And so this law, thy law, is the only set of, of uh, moral absolutes to which we are to compare ourselves. And so we pray, O Lord, that we would see thee as our Lord, our only true God. And we pray that we might see this law as thy only true law. We pray, O Lord, that we would not um, make up um, false visions of thee, false views of thee. Um, uh, we pray that we would not take thy name in vain, that we would not talk a good game, talk about the Lord. Uh, when indeed we did not mean it. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would have the highest view possible of thy Lord's day, and that we would not so easily dismiss uh, godly exercises on this day for the things that we would like to do or prefer doing, but that we would prefer to worship thee and to put our minds upon thee and focus upon thee and concentrate on thee and Sing to thee and praise thee, whether in together like this morning or um, together as a family later or individually in our private worship before thee. But we pray that this Lord's day might be sanctified and that we might enjoy more life, abundant life, as we turn our, our foot from the things that we might do to the things that thou hast given us to do. We pray, O Lord, that, that thou wouldst Help us to honor thee as the paradigm of authority over us. And then as that paradigm is displayed in our lives through our parents, honor thy father and thy mother. We pray that as children we might honor father and mother. As, as, as adults we might honor the traditions of the fathers and mothers of faith who have gone before us. We pray that we would honor uh, the great things of faith the memorials that we have been handed in terms of doctrine and that kind of thing. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not covet um, the, the life of other people. We pray that we would love other people as we love thee, and that we would not think of killing them or 
taking their lives from them. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not neither covet that nor the things that people have, the, the wherewithal, the monies of their lives, the accomplishments. We pray that we would not envy or want to steal, but that instead we would want to give. Give us liberal hearts, O oh Lord, that delight in giving to other people from our abundance. O oh God, help us to be faithful and have fidelity. Now help us, O oh Lord, not to have a spirit that would like to go a whoring after other gods. O oh God, give us hearts that would not be so easily seduced by the appearances of the flesh. O oh God, help us not even to be to be confused by platonic categories of absolute beauty or whatever. But help us to be help us to be in love and to fall in love with those husbands and wives that you've given us that have their own beauty, their own fingerprints from thy hand. Help us, O oh Lord, not to want to steal then, but to give. Help us, O oh Lord, not to covet, uh, but to uh, love the blessings that fell upon other people. Help us not to lie, nor cheat, nor steal. And, O oh Lord, we know that we have fallen far short of this on every hand, but we know that there is one who has a right hand full of righteousness, for he has succeeded in every one of these points of thine ethical compass. Bless us then with his works and not ours. Bless us with his righteousness and not our own. Help us to see our own righteousness as filthy rags compared with his, and help us to glory in his goodness before thy face, O Lord, that we might inherit eternal life. Bless us then in this prayer, O Lord. Help us to examine ourselves and bless us with faith to come forward and to eat and to drink of this righteousness for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.